Welcome to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. We speak with Queen's Council, trial lawyers and judges from around the world about how they excel in the courtroom. Please subscribe on your favourite podcast platform and visit us for additional resources at theadvocacypodcast.com. I'm your host, BB Badejo. And for season two, we're starting with something slightly different. We will focus on one specific trial and we have two very special guests. I am joined by Jerry Blackwell and Steve Slesher, who were two of the lead prosecutors in the trial of Derek Chauvin. Jerry is the founding partner, CEO and chair of Blackwell Burke and is an award-winning corporate defence attorney. He is also the founder of the Minnesota Association of Black Lawyers. Steve has also won many awards. He is a partner of Mason LLP and his work focuses on high stakes criminal and civil litigation, government and internal investigations and appellate practices. There was so much to discuss, we have had to bring it to you in two parts. In this episode, Jerry and Steve share their journeys in law from the starts of their careers up to their work on this historic trial. Let's start with Steve telling us a little bit about himself. My name is Steve Slisher, and I'm a trial attorney in Minnesota in the United States. I'm in private practice. I was a prosecutor for about 20 years, a little bit over prior to going into private practice, meaning I did uh, prosecutions and criminal law for the government. And I am uh, Jerry Blackwell. I'm also living in Minnesota, but originally from the South in the U.S., North Carolina. So I've been here for over 30 years. I'm a civil practitioner, never been a criminal lawyer, except for the Chauvin trial. My trial work has taken me to 47 out of the 50 states in the U.S., as well as uh, handling different matters from Australia to uh, the U.K. and Canada. At this point, my stock and trade is civil trial work in what's called complex cases, mostly defending and preserving the assets of very large companies. Jerry, if you could just share with us, how did you first go into law? I decided I wanted to be a lawyer when I was eight years old in the second grade. It wasn't because I knew any lawyers or I thought how wonderful. It's because we had a large family, six kids. And whenever you could spend time in getting your mother's attention, nothing was better. So my mother saw that I liked to read and she said, you should be a lawyer. And so I decided I wanted to be a lawyer because it would make my mother proud. And that was in the second grade. And I just never, never changed. So I've wanted to be a lawyer since I was eight. That's so adorable. Steve, how about you? Since you were eight years old? <laughs> Not quite. <laughs> uh, I grew up on a dairy farm in a small town in northern Minnesota. So I spent my childhood milking cows and taking care of animals. In high school, I guess through the whole process of, of growing up, I realized there were some things I was good at and some things that I was struggling to average at best. I tried to debate and public speaking when I was in high school and discovered that it was something that I was good at and I loved it. You know, I think I spent a career chasing that same feeling that you get uh, when you're public speaking and things are going well and uh, just how everything kind of rushes. You can drown out every other background noise and uh, distraction and just sort of flow and concentrate on what you're doing. And I loved it. I loved that feeling. And I thought of professions uh, that would allow me to make a living public speaking and not milking cows, uh, being a lawyer sounded pretty good. And so 
I decided to do that when I was still in high school and, um, and was determined to, to become that. Now, you both have impressive careers as trial lawyers, and I'm assuming that you didn't start that way. So how would you compare yourself as a trial lawyer at the start of your career and now? What has the change been? At the start of my career, you know, I'm in my 20s, and I had a job as a prosecutor in a very small county in southeastern Minnesota. The population of the county is about 50,000 maybe 20,000 in the town. And we had anything from burning permit violations, uh, dog at large, to uh, first-degree premeditated murder. And you handled everything. When I first started as an advocate, a lot of it was, uh, my message was, hey, look at me. Hey, look at what I can do. And I think as I matured as an advocate and as a human being, it became, hey, look at my case. Look at the evidence. I have a really great story to tell you. I have a very interesting uh, case to present to you. And I think that that was something that transformed me both as a human being and as an advocate. Because when you're excited about your case and when you can't wait to tell somebody something, people tend to listen to that. If it is about just uh, your performance and uh, having people watch it, how uh, amazing you can do, uh, it doesn't come off as very genuine. And frankly, it's not very interesting. Totally agree with that. How about you, Jerry? For me, going to undergrad in law school in North Carolina, coming to Minnesota to work for a large law firm, it was like almost a, an alien environment coming to Minnesota. I had gone to law school instead of going to seminary at the time. So that was sort of my thing. Am I going to ministry? Am I going to be a lawyer? So as a lawyer starting out, I was still committed to representing the causes of those who were kind of the downtrodden. So it would be those without voices, uh, the, the victims, et cetera, against powerful interest. So I went to work at a large law firm. I was two lawyers of color in the firm with hundreds of lawyers. And I never had a case when I was a junior lawyer. I had causes. Uh, so I, mean, I was on fire for every one of them. So if it's a, a woman who has used an intrauterine device who's now infertile, this is a cause. And the company that made the product to me was per se evil. And any lawyers who would dare represent them were simply sellouts and uh, worthy of uh, the utmost disdain. I mean, on fire. And, uh, and that's how I approached every case that was a cause. And I'm here to vindicate what is right and to banish what is wrong. And that went on for several years. Uh, I still run into people who only remember me that way <laughs> you know, from, from back then. They don't say hello with a smile. And so as, as you kind of grow older, my view sort of matured. No, they didn't sort of, they did. To the, the point now, I don't like frivolous cases now, period. Uh, either frivolous claims or frivolous defenses and don't like to be asked to weigh in on them. It's a more mature view of the nature of advocacy. And most who knew how I started in my career would find it ironic that I'm a lawyer for Fortune 500 companies now. And I will still take a good case when the innocent, what I call Regular folk uh, have been injured. I love those cases. But as I say, I'm interested in meritorious, legitimate claims and defenses now. So less fiery on the outside. <laughs> less fiery. Got it. Before <laughs> we started recording, I was saying how I thought you both have a very relaxed advocacy style, but you're also quite different. Jerry, how would you describe your advocacy style? Conversational. I don't think of myself as ever having a presentation to a jury. I'm always having a conversation with the jury, that we are 
seeing the evidence uh, together, the things I want to show them, things I want to make sure they understand. I want to be their guide. And so I would describe the style as conversational, but at the same time, you, know, you have gears. There are times where you have to turn it up to get the truth out. But my style for the most part is conversational. Steve, can you tell us about your advocacy style? My goal with the jurors, with judges, with anyone I'm speaking with is to try to establish a level of trust. And establishing trust means to act with integrity in the words you choose, in the evidence that you choose, in the manner in which you treat people. How you treat people says more about you than uh, any particular way you can turn a phrase in front of a jury. I think you need to be respectful and deferential to the judge to a point. I think you need to be respectful and deferential to your opponent, particularly, and to the witnesses and to speak the truth and to believe it. And if you do that, when you're then at the final point, when you're giving your closing argument or summation to the jury, they recognize that you believe what you're saying and that they can trust what you're saying and that you're not trying to pull a fast one or play a trick on them. And then if you establish that, you can be in the role of being a teacher and guide. I think that with as many years of prosecution, that's of course affirmative work. And so you have to convince the jury that you've proved certain things. And being able to take them through those things in a way where you can discuss the evidence that's been presented to them and show them the path to come to the conclusion that you want them. So that's what I try to do in, in my practice. Now, in terms of your growth as trial lawyers, was it a natural progression or was it something that you actively had to work on? So I think anyone who's listened to my story will know that it, it was active. This did not come naturally at all for me. What's about you, Steve? Well, it was a progression, but a progression that's uh, both, you have to practice. The only way to really become good as a trial lawyer, to be a, a, an effective advocate, is to be an advocate, is to practice. Now, I think the academic study is something that you need to pursue as well. But I don't think that academic study without context, without some battle scars, without really getting humiliated a few times is as effective because you don't understand what it is your teachers are trying to tell you. So my advocacy started uh, really in traffic court on very low level cases. They were the most important cases in the world to the people who would show up for them. But you'd be in arraignment court, and you'd get 75 files maybe uh, 20 people would show up and maybe five of them would say, I'm not pleading guilty. I want a trial, whether it's their speeding ticket or their uh, misdemeanor uh, driving while intoxicated or what have you. And there you go. You just have to do the trial and think on your feet and you learn in a very, very um, safe way because the world would keep spinning along if you lost, of course. And in fact, uh, they would be very happy. But, you know, you do that and you learn how to direct and you learn how to cross and give uh, summations and then move on to jury trials and whatnot. I think the thing that in terms of academic study really changed things for me, uh, prosecutors in the United States, federal prosecutors in particular, and I was one for 13 years, get to go to the National Advocacy Center in South Carolina, which is a, a beautiful facility right on the University of South Carolina campus. And it is a trial laboratory. The, the classrooms are courtrooms. 
and uh, you're recorded. Every one of them is wired for, for sound and video. I started going in uh, the late 90s when it first opened and actually was able to do so as an assistant uh, county attorney or district attorney. A two-week course in which you had a case and you had to prepare it and do directs and crosses, opening and closing, um, expert work that's videoed. And then you would have a number of different staff members sit there and make you watch yourself, which is just awful. There's very few things that irritate me than the sound of my own voice when I hear it played back or else to, to look at myself performing. I have a lot of uh, criticism. But that exercise of watching yourself, listening to yourself, Am I using short sentences? Am I communicating to the jury? Am I speaking to them like a human being? That was very eye-opening. And I think that from that experience, I really went forward into my practice much more excited and energized and thoughtful about what it was I was doing. And Jerry, what did you do to improve? Was it a matter of practicing and practicing, which you alluded to earlier, or again, was there something that you were doing, such as going on courses, reading books? I think of, of uh, advocacy and, and trial lawyering as an art. I mean, you can only do so much and learning how to better dance by reading about dancing. Uh, so you've got to get up and dance. And when you're in a large law firm, a civil firm doing uh, big complex cases, it's difficult to get any trial experience for most lawyers. It is particularly difficult now, but it was even when I started a zillion years ago, it was hard. So I would take any moment I got. I mean, I, I've appeared in immigration court before. I'm not an immigration lawyer, but I've been there. Small claims court, small matters. I would take any of them. And I would hold my hand up to take the cases that were viewed as dogs in the firm. They were in here. Uh, nobody wants to really take this case. It flees all over it. I'll take it and I'll do it. Because you get into court, you get into trial. And that to me is the best way to learn your lessons. I mean, I, I have been there in trial where I'm trying to cross-examine a witness and I get my hat, my hands, my everything handed to me by a witness on cross-examination. And nothing makes you say never again like that experience because, you know, most of us have this kind of latent sense that one of these days somebody's going to figure out that I don't really know anything. But you hate for it when that day actually comes, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And that happens, and uh, that sure is a, a motivation. But for me, I just kept leaning in, find another uh, opportunity to get up in front of people. Um, we had um, a practicum at, at this firm of a couple hundred lawyers, and it was a small group of associates and as many partners, maybe 20 of us all together. And I never, never forget it. It was a, a course that was acting for lawyers. And so they brought in people from theater who were going to work with you about how do you stage when you speak and how do you kind of use the, the room even that you may give part of the presentation here, but now you move over to this part of your box and now you change the whole tone, maybe even change the, the cadence. You may change uh, the volume. It was just a day practicum. But what was interesting to me is I got to see the partners in the firm present. That was the best thing that ever happened because I thought I can do that. You know? Yeah. Okay. All right. I am where I belong. Uh, I got that. It was sort of the inspiration. So from that point on, it was to me just uh, taking opportunities uh, you get, stepping into them. There's uh, to me nothing like having convinced the client that I'm your go-to person. I'm the one you want to parachute in. And then they think, yeah, you are. 
And then when they go, you think, oh, my God, <laughs> I'm going to get killed when I go to this place. <laughs> but you work hard. You do the prep. And you stand up and your advocacy just gets better from uh, experiences you have. You get the sense for what does or what doesn't work with jurors. Um, mock trials. Uh, I'm in a gazillion mock trials, which happens in complex civil cases where you have a mock jury that simulates the demographics of your actual jury. And you have them help you develop themes, um, get reactions to witnesses. Those are just a treasure trove for learning and improving your advocacy skills. And it all translates. Uh, I think to the extent I have any effectiveness as a trial lawyer, I'm just a patchwork quilt of bits and pieces I've taken from all kinds of other good trial lawyers and appropriated things and tried to make them my own. But to me, it's looking for the moments to get up on your feet and practice the art, but you can never get there by reading the books or just by watching other people. You have to get on your feet. I completely co-sign Actually, no, I don't co-sign that. I'm going to present it as a completely original idea that, yes, you are supposed to take on um, the great bits from mm -hmm. <laughs> other trial advocates and not give credit either. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, they, they got it from somebody too. So. Exactly. <laughs> All right. It's, it's fine. I'll, I'll take it. All my stuff's completely original, just uh, for the record. <laughs> exactly. And I will continue to steal from you as well and not give you credit either, Steve. <laughs> Um, you're both really experienced. Is there anything that you still want to learn or delve into in terms of courtroom skills? Always. I'm still like a sponge. I think just about every lawyer I see, there's always something that kind of strikes me as, oh, hmm, either that worked or, oh, hmm, that really didn't work. So for me, there's kind of perpetual learning. So I never think, okay, I got this. I understand this. And I can't pick out anything in particular because I still consider myself very much a student, that I wished I were better at every phase of everything. The cases that go to trial here are generally cases that are hard cases, and more often than not are really bad jurisdictions for my clients to have to defend themselves. And I'm used to going into jurisdictions where I've got no love whatsoever from the trial judge. Zero. Good morning, Mr. Blackwell, spit thee upon your name. And I'm used to that. So you've got to take your case to the jury and then hope that you can get a better audience with them. So anything that kind of helps me to kind of learn better, understand better, anywhere I go, because here in the U.S. at least, how you try cases will very much differ, whether you are in Utah, for example, in Florida, in Mississippi, or in Minnesota. I would echo that. I, I went to law school and began my legal studies in 1992, and I've been a law student ever since. I get excited when there's a different area that I get to learn. And I, I heard this in a movie once. It was the, the Devil's Advocate. The law is the ultimate backstage pass. And it really is as I reflect on my own career. As a prosecutor, I've been in gruesome murder scenes. I've been in uh, drug production labs. I've been in the JAG Corps. I got to be a soldier and do uh, court martials. I've been able to tour large factories and see how things are made, uh, you know, different medical devices and products and whatnot. And it fascinates me to be able to learn something so well that then you are able to teach it. And I'm constantly trying to um, upgrade and update the way I impart information to a jury or to anyone, really. And so when I think about what would I like to learn, I think about what tools were available at the time I started as an advocate. 
and it was pretty much a, a chalkboard or a whiteboard, maybe an opaque projector. You could make a model of something, right? You, you could do that. And I like to try different things to think of how I would be able to educate the jury. Expectations are high. We're in a very high consumption, high media consumption society. You look at the evening news, they're throwing together a production, a half hour production every evening in which the world events are distilled for an audience and there's spoken word and it's choreographed with written word and of course pictures. And I'm always looking for ways to use images, imagery, whether it's a, a still photograph or a, a video clip to you know, improve my advocacy, to augment. It can never replace the spoken word. The spoken word will always be very important, but we are in a different time now. And there's a lot of science out there in how we learn, how we are able to educate ourselves. Some people can learn things by reading. Some people learn things more visually. What I like to do in terms of uh, learning more is learn newer and better and more efficient ways to communicate information, to educate a jury, to drive them to the decision point I'm trying to get them to reach. So now we're going to turn to the trial of Derek Chauvin. And I'm going to provide a summary for anyone who is unaware of the facts leading up to that trial. On Monday, the 25th of May, 2020, George Floyd, a 46-year-old black man, was arrested on suspicion of using a counterfeit $20 bill. During his arrest, police officer Derek Chauvin knelt on George's neck for nine minutes and 29 seconds after he was handcuffed and lying face down on the floor. George became increasingly distressed and complained at least 27 times that he couldn't breathe. Bystanders, including a nine-year-old, pleaded for him to lift his knee, but he did not do so. And this is even after George became motionless and a pulse could not be found. His murder was recorded on several videos, including by a 17-year-old, and the video was posted on social media and went viral. Mr. Chauvin and the other three officers were subsequently fired, arrested and charged. The murder trial began on March 8, 2021 in the Minnesota 4th Judicial District Court and concluded on April 20th when the jury found him guilty of second-degree unintentional murder, third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Now, in England and Wales, the indictment for a homicide is either murder or, or manslaughter. You can't have both. Um, and I know that the charging decision was made before the both of you got on board. Can you explain why Derek Chauvin was charged with one count of second degree unintentional murder, one count of third degree murder, and one count of second degree manslaughter? Those charges are charges in the alternative. And that those were meant to give the jury a range of choices in deciding what they were going to do in light of the conduct. The second degree unintentional murder charge required the jury to find that Derek Chauvin caused uh, George Floyd's death unintentionally, but in the course of committing a serious felony, in this case, a, a felony level assault. That is uh, defined as murder under the Minnesota Code. The third degree murder is more of a negligence-based, extreme uh, negligence-based uh, theory. The commission of a homicide through an eminently dangerous act that evinces a uh, a depraved mind, doing something that in and of itself is so inherently dangerous that one would have to know how dangerous it is. And then the third choice, of course, the manslaughter is also a negligence-based, it's called culpable negligence. It's negligence with an element of recklessness. 
all three charges were appropriate and fit the conduct. But you have to recognize that it is important sometimes to give the jury a range of choices in case there's some sort of a disagreement or a compromise needs to be made. Now, Derek Chauvin was convicted of all three charges, but an entry of conviction is only entered on the most serious. That is the second degree intentional murder, and that's what he's sentenced on. The other two charges are sort of hanging there in suspension uh, if there was anything in appellate action that would affect one of the counts, the others would in fact remain. It's important in a case like this, given, as you know, the very poor track record of holding law enforcement accountable for deaths uh, like this, uh, felt that it was important. That brings me to my next point, because as someone who lives outside of the United States, my perception is that when it comes to police brutality cases, there is a tendency for the individual police officers not to be held accountable. Sometimes it doesn't even get to court in the first place. And from the top of my head, I think of way back to Rodney King. I remember watching that video and then hearing that the officers were found not guilty. Or there's Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, Philando Castile, and the list unfortunately goes on. So with this historical context, what did you think when Attorney General Keith Ellison asked you to be involved as part of the prosecution? It was just a a flood of reactions, really. When I saw the video, part of what was unique about the George Floyd murder in comparison to Rodney King, yes, Rodney King didn't didn't die, but not only did George Floyd uh, die, he was killed, but he did so in all of our living rooms because we we all saw it. And um, as an an African-American, I can most certainly relate to the experience of police uh, abuse. I've, I've never been beaten by the police, but I've had any number of experiences of being stopped for no reason, being followed around for no reason, uh, being told I fit the description of somebody that I don't see how I fit the description of, you know, years and years of it. And that's just in my life. I can go back through uh, hundreds of years of lives of people like me who have similar stories to tell. There's never been a time uh, when those stories haven't been available to be told here. And so when I saw that, I just re- reacted to it almost in an existential way. It went through me. Every cell in my body sort of resonated with, uh, this is the time to stand up to do something, whatever you can do as a lawyer. Step in the breach and get involved. So when Attorney General Ellison called and asked, I mean, I said yes kind of right away and didn't know how I was going to make my life work, having said yes, with the practice, with my wife, uh, with any of it. I mean, I felt so strongly about it that uh, that this is part of the reasons that I'm here on the planet is for this particular case, and and not to be over dramatic about it, but I think that had I served on this case, and if I had not managed to physically survive it, then my life would have still served its purpose. It was that's just that deep. Steve, what's about you when you got that call? Firstly, did you believe it? <laughs> no, uh, I didn't. Uh, I thought someone uh, maybe uh, playing a trick on me. Uh, I received a call. I had a missed call. I'm in private practice, so I don't miss calls that I don't return. <laughs> so I. I, I called back and, and it was Keith Ellison. He said, this is uh, Keith Ellison, the attorney general. And I, I remember giving half a laugh and saying, really? And, and he said, yeah, no, it really is. And I could recognize his voice and realize that uh, it wasn't somebody uh, uh, pranking me. And, you know, he asked uh, if I would have some time to discuss the case. It, uh, 
you know, because of my prior life as a prosecutor, oftentimes when things would happen in the news uh, that were upsetting to people, I would get called by the firm or any other numbers of groups to try to put things in context and explain at least the process, what the process would be, what an arraignment is, how long investigations take, uh, all of that sort of thing. And so I uh, watched the video, of course, and I was shocked. Uh, I was horrified by it. And I'd spent some time trying to talk to my colleagues about what would come next. Then the attorney general called me and asked me if I'd uh, care to discuss the charges uh, where I saw the culpability. So we just had a, a conversation and I gave him my views and told him what I thought the challenges would be, which are obvious, the historic uh, challenges in any time you're going to be trying to hold a police officer accountable, it's going to be an uphill battle. And at the end of it, he asked me if, if I would help. And I was absolutely honored to do so. I did have to check with my partners and make sure that that was something that we would be able to do. But for me, uh, spending so many years uh, as a public servant, as a prosecutor in different contexts, uh, as a member of the military, and frankly, as a member of, of a state that has been so very good to me, I mean, I decided I wanted to be a lawyer. And so I was able to will myself to be a lawyer. I had great teachers and uh, I went to great uh, public schools and I've had a very good quality of life here and have benefited and lived well from a, a, a wonderful profession. And the attorney general of my state was calling me and asking me for help and what else could I do but to say yes. And so it was, it was an honor. It was a calling and one that I took very seriously. And not only did you both say yes, you also both offered your services on a pro bono basis. Now, it might be obvious, but I think I just really wanted to hear in your own words why you did that. The death of uh, George Floyd was, in my personal feeling and opinion, an affront to humanity. It's out of, for me, love and caring for humanity that I wanted to do this as a service. It was simply serving. And I knew, or at least had a sense, that the kind of resources that the state would really need to kind of gear up to fight this in the way that would be needed, probably not going to have. And so I offered it. And in my law firm, I'm the Blackwell and Blackwell Burke. I mean, I was a partner in the large law firm before starting my own 20 years ago. And so it wasn't just me. Uh, we have six partners here. Three of them donated their time pro bono in supporting this plus an additional attorney and a paralegal. So we had a full contingent of those from just here who were in support of the effort who also donated their time. It was a calling. It was a cause. And this is something that mattered to our state, to the family of George Floyd, to people all over the world. It just felt like the right thing to not get caught up on uh, being paid to do it. So we did. Yeah, I'd echo that. I mean, it just wasn't something that you would really charge for in a couple of respects. One, they called and asked for help. Uh, and so we gave it to them. You know, other attorneys from my firm donated time, helped me prepare, had conversations with me, helped me do outlines. It was a service. And the other thing, to be frank, the two kinds of clients who are the best for me are those who have unlimited resources and I can do anything I want and prepare as much as I want. And if I need to prepare 20 hours a day, that's great or those who have no resources at all. And so I can work on it 20 hours a day and prepare as much as I want and do whatever I want. Because, you know, really, if you want to be good at something, you have to be prepared. 
And you have to be prepared at a level that means you're not just sort of doing this as a sideline. You have to dedicate yourself to it. You have to immerse yourself in it. And I, I can't imagine um, what Jerry or I's legal bills would have looked like if we actually had to write down the, the time we put in this and give the government a bill for it. Do you know how much time you did put into that? Thousands of hours. The great thing about doing pro bono is that you don't have to write your hours. <laughs> You're not required to, but no, I mean, hundreds and hundreds. I, I don't know if Jerry or I had a, a weekend. We didn't work on this. Uh, we worked on it certainly every day during the week and most weekends from the time General Ellison called us up until the time of trial, both maintaining a practice as, as well. Yeah, I know our firm collectively, we have thousands of hours devoted to it time-wise. And it also brings me to another thought, really. There must have been a pressure for you to be successful in this prosecution. It wasn't just a national thing. You were being closely watched throughout the world. And then I think this was the first time that a judge had allowed cameras in to film an entire trial. I can only imagine the amount of pressure that you were were under for such a high-profile case. So how did you manage this pressure? I would say first of all, and I think this will be true for Steve too, we just tuned out the cameras and the social media altogether. We couldn't even look at that during the trial. It would just distract. And if I walked in the house and, and, um, well, I didn't walk in the house because I didn't stay at home. I had to stay away from home because it wasn't safe to stay at home during the trial. But if I walked in, the television's on and there's a story about the trial, I would either leave the room or turn the channel so as not to be distracted by it. To stay focused on uh, the witnesses, on the evidence, uh, what has to be up to, uh, for the next day. Um, the, the, the stresses to me were, were far less the fact that the world is watching. You know, the whole case to me was in a way like standing on a, uh, an uncertain key device under which runs sort of a torrent of a potential race and social issues or even class. And you're hoping that the ice holds and that you don't get swept away with the trial with these other issues kind of taking them over that were just undercurrents that were underneath and in the undertow. So that was sort of a stressor to me that uh, how do we keep the trial from becoming a referendum on uh, policing or on Blue Lives Matter or on Black Lives Matter? Because if it became a referendum for any juror, I think we probably lose. The other stressor that was real for me kind of after the fact was, I mean, I'm a civil practitioner and your reputation is all you have. So if I have a reputation for trying cases for mostly companies and I go out on a case like this, a criminal case when I've never had one, there were at least a couple of scenarios in the 360 degrees around that circle where I could end up as a joke on a T-shirt for what happened in the trial or a meme. And that could potentially mean when the trial's over that the clients you had don't really want you to be their lawyer anymore. So it was kind of, to me, all is kind of pushed up on the table uh, in this. That's something I acknowledged. And then you just sort of move it over there, off to the side. I think overwhelmingly, though, the stress for us had to do with uh, the challenge of putting on a good, tight, strong case. And the theater aspects of it, the cameras were around the perimeter of the top of the room in the courtroom, so they weren't in your face. The courtroom was otherwise strange enough anyway that you didn't notice the cameras and their strangeness because you're surrounded by plexiglass and there's no jury box and you're wearing a mask around. All of that was strange anyway for presenting a trial. That was, to me, an overarching strangeness being there in person and looking at jurors through the mask like this the whole time you never saw people's complete faces. 
was strange. But I wouldn't say that the fact that the world was watching was the pressure. And I have to add to BB uh, that when we agreed to do this, we didn't agree to do it knowing it was going to be a televised trial. You know, so that was <laughs> so when we heard cameras, we're like, wait a minute, we wait a minute. We agree to that, but, you know. It's too late now. Everybody's going to watch, ugh, you know. So, uh, but we say, hey, we're in for a penny and for a pound. So, uh, so we're in. But uh, but I do think for us, the, uh, the biggest stress, I'd say, for the team was the challenge of putting on sort of a proper case, and it really wasn't, honestly, the cameras. Steve? Yeah, I would agree. The cameras, it's just like going shopping uh, at a store where there's surveillance cameras. Right? You don't, you know, they're there, but you don't really think about it. You focus in and drown that out. You know, the, the stressors uh, always come with uh, coordination and logistics and making sure that people were going to be in the right place. And I suppose how I handled the, the stress would depend on who you ask. If you ask me uh, brilliantly, I won't ask my family to weigh in. Uh, there's a nickname for me. They call me Trial Steve. And apparently, Trial Steve isn't that much fun to be around. And and sometimes you take steps to avoid that guy. But I did uh, take comfort in the fact that, you know, we had just such an amazing team uh, of people, of advocates, not only uh, presenters, but people behind the scenes coordinating the victim's family coordinating the witnesses, making sure that when we said the state calls this witness, that that witness is actually in the hallway waiting. And I would be able to take comfort in that, knowing that I, I was surrounded by very good people. And the other uh, thing that I think was a source of stress and also a source of peace is from the moment I saw the video, this was just such a shocking and obvious display of excessive force. I was comforted by the strength of our own case. That caused me stress as well, because like you, I was aware of the Rodney King case. I was pretty young when it happened, but I saw it. It seemed pretty obvious to me and we know what happened, right? And so part of it, knowing how strong the case was and how much I believed in it, yet up until the end, we were breathless with anticipation that, you know, are they going to get this right? And it's so important that they do. It's so important that they that they see this and understand and follow the law and do the right thing. That's something you just carry through. And it doesn't debilitate you. It drives you. It makes you want to push. It makes you want to do uh, uh, as, as well as you can to present uh, the case in the way it's supposed to be presented. Now, from what I've been able to read in terms of research for this episode, I saw that there was a team of 14 prosecutors. I think it's quite obvious why you need such a big team, given the gravity of this case. But what was it like for you both to work within a team of that size? Is that something you're used to? Or are you like us in the UK? I, I literally work on my own in my cases. It's just me. How was it for you, Steve? Coming from a, a, a government practice where you typically it's just a couple of people, uh, maybe two lawyers, maybe one, it was different when I stepped into private practice. And I think this is an important point. I stepped into private practice and I'm participating in situations uh, like, like with Jerry, where you have very large corporations that are fighting over money. You'll walk into a courtroom 10 lawyers deep and no one bats an eye because your big corporations fighting over money. But when you're fighting for justice, when you're fighting for what is truly important and truly matters in this world, 
you get questioned about having a, a large team. There was a David and Goliath narrative that was going on in the media. It was a false narrative because the other side had a team of lawyers too. The person who was referred to as a defense counsel's assistant, you know, she's a lawyer. It was very much trying to cast a sort of a, a image of this person up against this very large team. We benefited from the team. I feel like, you know, if we're going in and people are questioning us and saying, you know, uh, the biggest mistake you made was that you put too many resources into it. Uh, that's a mistake I can live with. I can live with that mistake for the rest of my life. If it's uh, that you didn't try hard enough, that you didn't care enough, and you did a poor job, well, I couldn't live with that. Working with a large team like this, and this particular team, was just the absolute highlight of my career. Jerry and I didn't know each other going in. We talk about the process and how we did this. Uh, dividing into our various disciplines. I was in the use of force, which was an obvious fit given my uh, prior life. Jerry concentrated uh, on the medicals and a lot on themes. And, you know, we would present to each other. We would over Zoom have these meetings and we would present to each other. And I would see Jerry present his ideas in a persuasive, passionate, well thought out way. There was no phoning it in on this group, not from the first meeting. We all brought it every single time. This may shock you, but we're a little bit competitive over here. Jerry is, I am, and we don't just show up and phone it in. He's much worse. He is. But, <laughs> and I'll be honest, the first um, meeting we had, and I see uh, Jerry give this presentation, and it was outstanding. It was over a weekend of preparation as polished as you will see attorneys working up cases for uh, six months. It's just that good. And then the next week was my turn. And I'm like, okay, let's go. <laughs> right? It was competition, but we were making each other better. And we were driving each other. And every single person in every one of those meetings was passionate about the case. And they wanted to succeed and they wanted to do the very best. And so... Um, that's what it was like being a part of that team. It was it was magic. It was magic. BB, for my part, working with larger teams like this has been my entire career. I mean, so whether I was on the plaintiff's or defense side, I started off doing plaintiff's work, but it wasn't just the, you know, I slipped on a banana peel in the grocery store. It was crash of airlines, for example, where you're representing the victim. So even within the firm, the teams were dozen and a half lawyers, even on that, on the plaintiff side. On the defense side, we worked with what I call virtual law firm models for over, for me, 20 years. We call it coopetition, where we work with lawyers from other law firms every day, all the time, uh, in a major case where we have different roles. I might be in a trial counsel role. Somebody else may be the appellate counsel. A third lawyer may be writing the motions and all these various firms. So I was used to that. And coming together to work that way. Nobody bats an eye, as Steve says, if there's a major litigation for one of my corporate clients, having 30 lawyers on the team, it's like, yeah, of course you do, across several different law firms. And sometimes 30 doesn't quite capture. 30 uh, would be how many lawyers are at trial, uh, not how many are on the team. Because some of these are like mega litigations with thousands of lawsuits all over the country, gone on a while. I mean, the roster of lawyers is over 100. And nobody bats an eye. In a case like this, an historic case like this, where this man's life was taken, it's certainly worth more than the defense of any product uh, for a company. 
And, and I add, if the newspapers are to be believed, I'm not saying they are, but if they are to be believed, uh, then the defense counsel had close to a dozen lawyers on their side too. And if the newspapers are to be believed, they actually got paid a million dollars plus too by the union for the police, if the newspapers are to be believed. Yes. <laughs> I don't consider that David and Goliath, that was a, a false narrative, but David did win. So not David and Goliath, and to the extent there was, to me, a David and Goliath, the real David and Goliath was the plight of a George Floyd and the struggle to get justice in a system when you are a person of color and the victim of excessive use of force by police. It almost never happens to little David because of the Goliath of a system. And that, to me, was the real uh, David and Goliath story that, to me, has garnered infinitely less attention than the false narrative of the poor soul lawyer sitting at the other table against this army of free lawyers for the state of Minnesota. If we take a step back now, just look at generalities. When it comes to preparing for a trial, what is your process? How do you approach the case? How do you gun all the facts so that you can grasp them fully? I was wondering that because you're probably going to have possibly different answers given, Jerry, you do in civil areas and Steve, it's crime. So Jerry, how do you start processing your preparation? I think it probably largely the same regardless. I mean, for, for me, the universe fades to black. When you're getting ready to go to trial, you eat, sleep, breathe the trial. And uh, you eat, sleep and breathe it during the prep. It is uh, normal for me that during trial and leading right up to it, if I get four hours of sleep a night, that's great. That's what it is. Not that I don't have time. I can't sleep. I'm up. Typically during trials, uh, go to bed early because I hit marginal returns pretty early. You stay up later, but you're not getting much done. And uh, at 3.30, I'm rocking and rolling, you know, before the uh, before the day starts. And, and I'm meeting with uh, tech people and so on at 4.30 in the morning at trial because it, it's, uh, boy, it's game on. So for me, you have to just be completely absorbed and give yourself to the whole trial uh, prep process. And uh, turning over every stone, you've got to do the preparation. You've got to know it. You can never presume uh, that there's some vulnerability you have that the other side probably doesn't know about. You can never be an ostrich. My head in the sand is, is more easily kicked in the rear. That's preparation, preparation, uh, and, and then prepare some more. When I'm in, in trial and getting ready for trial, as much as I, I love my wife, my beloved, that she would take two steps in and say hello, and she gets a smile on the first syllable and probably frowning by the second one because I'm in prep mode. It's like one continuous day. I think until it's ultimately finished. My rule of thumb, ideally, in getting ready for trial, I like to spend roughly seven hours in prep for every hour I spend in trial in the actual courtroom. So that means prep, 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 and always pushing to get there because you don't always have that kind of time. But I'm giving it all I got uh, to get ready. I am a schedule type of person. I love an Excel spreadsheet. And in fact, just to share a little embarrassing secret, which exposes how much of a nerd I am, I drew this massive schedule setting out the day of the trial, the date, the witness, who the witness was, summary of their evidence, who cross-examined them to prepare for this interview. I thought, I can't write this down in a linear fashion. I need a table. Are you prone to a schedule or an Excel spreadsheet here and there? That is wonderful, I think. BB and uh, Steve and I both have that sort of thing, but if we had to prepare it, we would never have it. So, ah. so, <laughs> so, so it is prepared and we do have it, 
But XL, I think, how many letters is an XL, Steve? I think maybe it's five. That, that's about I thought it was just two. Is yeah. that XL? But, Didi, we do have that. And Steve may talk more kind of about that in, in, our, in our own process. But if, if you're used to sort of, you know, being uh, on your own and, and being sort of a, the one-woman show, mm-hmm. then you create it yourself. But through the team, we would have that created because we'd have to have it too. Yeah. I'll turn to Steve. The process starts so early, right? I mean, and, and it is a, a, a process of learning, of reading. And then for me, especially, I just need to talk about the case. I need to have people that I can explain the case to. So I need to read the stuff. I need to look at the pictures. But then if I can't tell my dad about it, if I can't tell my mom or my wife, or my kids, uh, sometimes my dog about the case in a way that at least, uh, you know, they, they can understand, then I'm not doing it right, right? I have to practice not only learning the facts, but communicating those effectively to people. As a criminal practitioner, I've learned a few things. I always start with the jury instructions, the final jury instructions, whether it's criminal or civil, actually. When I have a case, I'm like, well, what is it in this case that the judge is going to read to the jury? What decision do they have to make? What questions do they have to answer? I start there. And then from there, it's the themes, the themes, the themes, the themes. Look at what it is that you're going to be able to use. What are the tools you have in your toolkit to make the jury understand, to make them want to rule in your favor, to make them want to make that decision? Because they have to answer the academic question. That's the the elements. The themes, you have to make them want to uh, be able to make that decision in your favor, to motivate them. And then I focus on the witnesses, because really, when it comes down to it, that's the most important part, isn't it? I mean, the witnesses who give the evidence, they have to bond uh, with the jury. We, as uh, uh, doing our direct examinations, have to introduce the jury to these people, to make them understand them, to make them empathize with them, and to listen to what they have to say. And so after I write all the elements out and we spend a lot of time talking about our themes and how we're going to impart this information, how we're going to motivate uh, them from the gut to then think you know, with their head and, and make the right decision, I look at the witnesses and I, I have their photo. I have maybe two or three bullets about what the witness is going to say. I use a program on Microsoft called Whiteboard. I like whiteboard. It's basically just um, um, you know note cards that you can sort of move around and, and do whatever. And um, we start uh, storyboarding this and putting the witnesses in the order that we think uh, is going to be most effective in building the case and telling the story to the jury in a way that they understand. And we can move those people around. We can cut some of those people if we need to. We can all share that. But that to me, is the most important. Because when it comes down to it, at the end of the trial, what the jury has uh, in their hand, they have the judge's written instructions, and they typically are going to go through count by count, element by element in that order, generally how they'll make the decisions. And then their collective uh, memory of the witnesses, focusing on that part of the story and making the witnesses memorable and being very intentional about how you do that, how you order that, how you phase the trial. Uh, that's part of the process, something we did a lot in our team, arranged, rearranged. Yes, because I had seen that there were about 400 witnesses 
There were so many witnesses. But when it came down to it, the prosecution only called 38 people. How did you make decisions around that so that you would have the most impactful witnesses? Because from watching it myself, not a single one of them was wasted. They were all incredibly compelling. How did you decide on the order of the witnesses that were going to give evidence at the trial? I'll speak to the number real quick and then ask Jerry to weigh in on the order. As far as the number, I spent my first year in practice clerking for a trial court judge. And um, in that role, I watched a lot of trials. I learned something very important. Probably the most important thing I learned was that even the most interesting case, even the most uh, sexy subject matter, whatever it is, can be made boring and painful by going on too long. You know, lawyers, we can crush the the joy out of just about every experience that one can have. And I learned this as I'm watching, you know, cases that should be very exciting, certainly would be if they were on TV, but it can be mind numbing. I can be easily distracted or uh, prone to get lost in my thoughts. As this is going on, I'm thinking to myself, this just isn't effective. And so in terms of the number of witnesses, um, fewer witnesses uh, is better. We want to have a complete record, of course, and we need to do that. But um, do what you need to and only what you need to. Life is short. Trials are long. You only have the jury's attention for so long. You should pretend that every word that you say costs you $100. You need economy of words. You should pretend that every witness that you put on the stand is going to cost you $5,000 because you need to treat the juror's time like it is the precious commodity it is, attention span. It's so fleeting. Right? And so uh, we try to trim it down. In terms of the 38 and the order of the witnesses, etc., it kind of goes to, for me, the overall concept of a trial. Have you ever seen these uh, picture puzzles that if you look at the picture one way, you see a witch. If you look a different way, you see a maiden. But it's the same lines. It's a matter of what do you pay attention to in the focus. And those lines in the picture puzzle are like the facts in a case. Uh, the various lines that get drawn represent the different perspectives on those facts. The, the question in the trial always is who is the jury going to trust to draw the lines? And that is all about how compelling is your narrative and how trustworthy, frankly, are you as an advocate uh, before the jurors that they want to follow you to draw the lines. So the witness order had to do uh, ultimately with what is our narrative? What do we want the jurors to be able to take away? You know, that this unarmed, defenseless man uh, who is not resisting, who is not fighting, who poses no risk, who's having the breath choked out of him, uh, one breath at a time under the full weight of a police officer, screaming for his life and for his mother. And he wouldn't let up and get up, uh, either one, uh, for nearly four plus and a half minutes, even after he had no pulse. And that that is completely unjustifiable, you know, ignoring the call outs of bystanders or first responders, et cetera. I mean, that's the nutshell of a sort of the narrative that we want them to get. So there are all kinds of questions about which witnesses are necessary to impart that kind of a narrative to the jury, as well as in what order do you start to tell the story? Do you start with the narrative? Do you start back in the store when he's in cup foods? Uh, buying uh, items and bring it forward chronologically and then end up uh, there on the ground? Or do you do what we did, which is start on the ground and uh, start right there as sort of ground zero and then later pan the camera back to say, here's what happened earlier. 
you can see what we decided to start where the action is and to start with the witnesses where the action is because um, uh, the old privacy recency uh, thing, which I know you know a lot about, TV, that that's important that you grab them uh, right up front with what is critically most important, uh, that we don't start off, for example, in a narrative that starts discussing, you know, George Floyd uh, was kind of fill in the blank. George Floyd was from fill in the blank because George Floyd's not on trial. And if he's not on trial, why would we start off making him the focal point of the trial as opposed to the officer's conduct that's at issue? Our approach to deciding how many and in what order was all driven by a narrative, which is our best attempt to have the jurors follow us when we want to trace the lines for what you see in the sort of picture puzzle of of, of facts and, and competing views about what they show. And our theme too, right? I mean, there was our narrative and then our theme, which was so important. And Jerry was a real leader in in driving the theme, which is believe your eyes, right? So you think about the way this was phased. Derek Chauvin's first jury was the bystanders. Those people were chosen at random um, just by fate and happened upon the scene and saw what was happening and universally condemned it. Of course, they were powerless to do anything, but that was his first jury. And so we started the trial with what they saw, what they happened upon. It was the the phases of blocks of witnesses. When you think of the first part was, this is what happened, right? This is what the witnesses saw. And then the next phase, you know, with the law enforcement phase, this is why that was wrong. This is why that's against the law, right? And then the third phase, the medical phase, and this is how he died. This is what happened, and it was wrongful, and that killed him. That was how that flowed together. And then the final you know, witness, the spark of life witness uh, with his brother, who so beautifully testified, was just a way to uh, breathe life back into George at the end. He was a person. He was a human being. And he loved his mom, and he loved his family. That was kind of the journey that we had to take them to then go from his first jury the bystanders to the jury then who we made bystanders. The jury became the bystanders because they got to see what happened. And again, a second jury then passed judgment on Derek Chauvin and condemned him. And this time they had the power to do something. The way the witnesses were presented really did set out what you wanted to achieve. And it appeared that you had quite a watertight case. Now, on the flip side, of course, there's a defense counsel looking at chipping away the state's case. So how did you go about really thinking about what the defense was going to say and also shutting it down? Because I thought that was incredibly effective from what I saw. Part of it, I think, was uh, goes to Steve's point about um, us being fundamentally competitive ourselves. So you think, well, what if I had the defense case? What would I do? and bring all the energy and creativity that you have to figuring out how do we beat uh, the state? That's how we went about it, uh, to, to sort of contemplate, here are the moves uh, that, that we would make, we would test them, we would argue about them. We probably worked uh, as hard uh, in thinking through the defense case as our own, thinking of how uh, our narrative would be challenged, your themes challenged, your experts challenged, what other things might they try to sort of play with, and then understanding all of that, then there were certain things we could do in the in the trial that were forms of inoculation, that we know this is coming. Some, I guess, refer to it as pre-buttle. If you know, for example, that some jurors might view this case as a referendum on all policing, 
then you write up front that this isn't that, uh, that this case embraces the policing is what this is all about. We embrace the badge. Uh, and what this case and trial is about has nothing to do with good policing or the good police officers. We couldn't be further away from that than right is from wrong. And so that was an anticipated sort of a, a thing, because if I were a defense lawyer, um, you couldn't just come out there out of the box and just say, this is a referendum and a fight against all police. But by, by the time you're finished, uh, they would sort of get that point uh, that, that you've made it subtly enough and still managed to make it. And so we anticipated it. Steve, anything you'd add to that? Really just that. I mean, you have to put yourself in the position of your opponent and you have to give it 100%. You really do. And, and think about what you would do to go on the attack and then um, come back you know, to your side and think of how you would uh, address those arguments. I will say no. I think that we studied this case hard and knew a little bit of the playbook. Um, you know, in, in getting ready for this podcast, Vivi, I, I sort of stalked you on Google. Um, I listened to, I think, every episode and read everything that I possibly could so that I could understand what this experience would be like. Because I'm a curious person and I like to know the lay of the land. You know, the same with this case. We met every week, multiple times a week. Uh, we, if you want to be excellent at something, you have to get a little bit obsessed with it. Uh, we listened to everything, read every page. To the extent there were recorded interviews, I'd be listening to them in my headphones as I'm walking on the treadmill or walking my dog. I mean, we just immersed ourselves. And so I think we did uh, our best to anticipate everything. And, and of course, knowing what the elements were, you know, that they know what they are too. They know where they have to attack and, you know, considering where we would go. And I probably only had one surprise uh, in the trial. I don't think I give anything away even to say what it was because I just assumed as not have to face it again. And that was the emphasis on carbon monoxide. And that just made no sense to me whatsoever. If you arrested somebody, they're in handcuffs in your custody. You couldn't tie them to the back of the squad car and drag them around. Well, that would be awful and abusive. Then what makes you think that you can put them in handcuffs on the ground and stick their face in front of the tailpipe? And then if you manage to asphyxiate them, you blame the car. It took up some time uh, in the trial. But at the end of the day, uh, if he was exposed to exhaust from a squad car, if you even knew if the squad car was on, and given that it was a hybrid vehicle and all of that, why is that better for an arresting officer to have treated somebody in their custody that way? That was my only surprise, I would say. Otherwise, I agree with Steve. And that's where part one ends. We get to talk about the advocacy techniques used during the trial. So stay tuned for part two on the next episode of the Advocacy Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Advocacy Podcast, Journeys to Excellence. If you enjoyed the episode, please subscribe and visit us at theadvocacypodcast.com for reading lists and other resources. Until next time.